Happy Father's Day, by the way, to each of you. Sure, miss my dad. I was thinking about him uh, here this morning. And for uh, many years, uh, I don't know, 15 or so straight years, we had him on a Sunday night where he would come up. Uh, during all those years, he lived down in Visalia, California, so he was able to come up. And he'd preach for us on Sunday night. And then afterwards, we'd have root beer floats and hot links. Amen. Anybody remember that? A few folks. Yeah. <laughs> I miss his engaging personality. He just, uh, I so much appreciate somebody that just wasn't so consumed in their own little world. But wherever he went, I mean, if it was at a coffee shop or no matter where we were, he just would engage people in conversation and a very warm personality. Very grateful for that. He was my greatest cheerleader. So grateful for the legacy he left. All right. Well, today we're going to uh, have another installment on our subject of sanctification. I know that's a big doctrinal word, but it just means set apart and chosen for a unique purpose. Our Heavenly Father has a grand design for each of us. We're not pieces of china that He just uh, makes and then sits on a shelf. No, we are to be used by God. His top priority for every child of God is to keep growing in our usefulness for Him. God made us for a purpose, and that's uh, what our theme is as we're going through this. Well, I hope uh, you can understand this. I hope that you can get uh, the best out of it. I was reminded of a story this week. There were three boys who were talking about their fathers and how amazing they were. One of them said, my father is a great professor. When he's talking about a subject, only 10 persons in the whole world can understand him. The second boy said, well, my father is a great brain surgeon. And when he talks about his surgery, there's only five people in the whole world even realize what he's talking about. The third boy proudly said, my dad is a pastor, and when he is preaching, nobody understands what he's saying, and, uh, but I hope you can understand about sanctification today. Let's all bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the power of your word, and I thank you for this beautiful service thus far and for a great crowd on a Father's Day, Lord, in the middle of the summer. Thank you. Thank you for the beautiful gifts, Lord, from our sister church in Kiev. I pray now, Lord, you give us your grace. In Christ's name, amen. 2 Timothy chapter 2, if you would please, 2 Timothy chapter 2. This has been our theme verse for these last couple of weeks and again here this morning. All right, let's read it together, if you would please. It's on the PowerPoint or you read it from your phone there or from your Bible. Ready, begin. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor sanctified and meet for the master's use and prepared unto every good work. The context for this verse is that God's church is a house. And in every house, there's all kinds of vessels. There's clean vessels that are usable. They're ready for use. There are other vessels that they have issues. They're dirty or they're cracked or they've got problems. Recycling today is a great big business. Our Spanish pastor is bivocational. He gets a, 
a little income from the church, but he has a great ministry here. And after we meet, they meet. But he also, if full-time, works for the county and has worked uh, in administration at the landfill. Recently, he drives truck. He was telling me the other day that you cannot believe the competition there is for the garbage out there. I said, what? He said, it's big business. He said, there's private companies that want our garbage. The government wants our garbage. Everybody wants the garbage. It is big business. Recycling uh, generates lots of income. And you know, recycling actually is a great example of sanctification. God finds an old can out there, the kind of cans we need for vacation Bible school. There you go, honey. And um, they, uh, he grabs that can, and then he, he saves it from destruction. But he doesn't just uh, hold on to it. He recycles it, and he puts it into use, and that's salvation. He not only saves us, but then he puts us into a new form so that we can be really usable in what we're doing. In the Scripture, God sanctifies many things. For example, he sanctifies days. We know perhaps the most familiar one is the seventh day which was sanctified unto the Lord, had a great symbolism in resting for salvation. He sanctifies things like uh, the items in the tabernacle, and then he sanctifies places. Bethel in Scripture, the house of God, uh, was a particular uh, beautiful uh, place to God, as is Jerusalem. God also sanctified people, as in the tribe of Levi. But he also sanctifies each of us. In fact, in uh, the epistle of Peter, he called us a holy or a sanctified nation. The word sanctified is, comes from the same word as holy. It just means sanctified or holified. Uh, sanctification is just holification is really, <laughs> I'm creating words here, but um, that's really what it is. It is just simply making somebody holy. Now, we, uh, in our first uh, uh, installment on this series, we talked about that out of John 17, that great Lord's Prayer, Jesus is the object and the, He is the power of sanctification. People say, well, I don't know how to be sanctified. He, he, the way to be sanctified, just keep your eyes on Jesus and you will be sanctified. Just keep your eyes on the Lord. Then last week, we talked about how that sanctification is not just for our spirit. Oh, yes, our spirit is constructed in such a way to get close to God. But God also wants a sanctified mind. He wants a strong mind, not just, you know, a weak mind. And He wants a sanctified body. Why should we take care of our bodies? Because we're riders, and our bodies are our horse, and it's the only horse we're going to get. And you've got to take care of that horse because you don't want it to die before the rider needs to get to the destination. And so I mentioned how that sanctification is to be complete sanctification. Now, if you happen to have a Nazarene background, you might, or Church of God background, you might say, oh, pastor's talking about entire sanctification. No, I'm talking about body, soul, and spirit sanctification. I'm not talking about getting to a point where we're uh, 
perfectly sinless. Now today, we're going to talk about why we are to be sanctified, and it's a little bit philosophical, and you're going to have to really listen closely to get it, but it's powerful. And then next week, the nuts and bolts. How do we sanctify ourselves? Do we just sit there and wait for God's grace to change us? Or do we put all the effort into it and whatever God does, that's His business? Well, we're going to talk about how. All right, let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, if you're not already there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Thessalonia, Thessalonica was a Grecian city, a coastal city. Paul had started a church there, and he loved these dear saints. Verse number 1. Let's all read it together, please. Ready, begin. Furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye has received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. Now, in verse 3, in a moment, we're going to talk about it's the will of God that we be sanctified. Now, he's, he's prefacing that with some thoughts here. And he's reminding them that, you know, I, I love this church. I love you guys. You've been an amazing church. And really, the church at Thessalonica is one of the most amazing churches. Paul was only there for three weeks on a missionary journey, and God birthed the most amazing church. It was a remarkable, remarkable church. And Paul was absolutely just ecstatic, and he was very proud of them. But here in this verse, he was saying, but I've got a concern. I am concerned that you don't just plateau and you don't just level off. Salvation is more than just getting saved out of the dump. It is being recycled and being used again. The Christian life is dynamic. It is not static. It is meant to be moving. Sanctification is progressive. Our entire Christian life, we're supposed to be growing. We've got these big oak trees here in the valley, and they are absolutely amazing. Some of them are hundreds of years old. They were here when the Indians were here in the valley, and they could tell quite a tale. The fact is, they'll be here another 100 years or another 200 years, and they just keep adding new rings of experience. Every once in a while, they cut those oaks down, and they can look through the different rings, and they can find when there were droughts, when there were floods, when there was a fire. They tell quite a story, but they just keep growing. God wants us to be like a big old oak tree, just keep adding new rings of experience scripturally, and just keep growing in the Lord. Salvation is an event that's completed at the moment I receive Christ. Sanctification is a process that is never completed in this life. Years ago, in Europe especially, in America, they were called charm schools. But in Europe, especially Switzerland and France, they were called finishing schools. They were mainly for those who were of an upper tier in society. They were meant to teach social graces and how to act properly with the, the particular status they were in finishing schools, mainly for young ladies. They would go there and learn these wonderful social graces, finishing schools. I got to thinking about that, and I got to realizing that, you know, sanctification is God's finishing school 
God is finishing us. He is just, we've already got a good education, already saved, already got all the nuts and bolts to the Christian life. But God wants us to just be so special that we make a huge difference for Him. He wants us to grow. As this verse says, notice what it says, abound more and more. Verse number 10 says pretty much the same thing. God wants us to just keep growing. It was C. William Pollard, the great Christian entrepreneur and businessman, millionaire of the Service Master Company. He said, never arrive. I love that statement. Never arrive. The great secret to the Christian life, never arrive. Never feel like you've arrived. Never just get to the point where you say, I've got it all. Here's what C. William Pollard went on to say, the arrogance of success, listen, is to think that what we did yesterday is sufficient for tomorrow. Never arrive. When I was a young man, I used to love riding my Schwinn 10-speed bike. Back then, a Schwinn bike was as good as you could get. And I had saved up, and I got a Schwinn 10-speed bike. I loved that bike. I had gotten so proficient at riding, I didn't even put my hands on the handlebars. I'd drive along. But I especially loved it when you could get up a lot of speed, and then you could coast. Or perhaps you could get to a small hill. We didn't have a lot of them in the Central Valley, but every once in a while you'd come to a hill, and boy, you could just coast. Now, coasting is absolutely fun. It is. Wind's blowing in your hair. I used to have that. And I mean, that hair was just blowing back there, and I'd look like that, and that hair would flip around, you know. That was back in the day when you had hair over your ears, you know, and I, I'd ride, and I just love coasting. But there's a serious problem with coasting. You always come to a stop. If you don't start pedaling, you are going to stop. Now, folks, I'm afraid to say that it seems like some Christians are just coasting. You're not pedaling anymore. I'm not pedaling anymore. What's going on? And I will tell you this. If we don't pedal, we're going to come to a stop. Hebrews 12, 14 says, follow holiness. Follow holiness. That word follow in the Greek means to run after or actually to pursue in a hostile manner. That is, we are to get aggressive about our sanctification. It cannot be left to chance. We must listen to the Holy Spirit's prompting. It's been said that sanctification is transformation through consecration. Now let's look at verse number two. Read it, if you would, please, with me. Ready, begin. For you know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. Now, the design of the gospel is not just a good set of philosophical concepts to talk about, you know, to sit around and kind of jaw about different philosophies, and people like to talk about, you know, you know the... the concept of just being open to all religions and, you know, they're all equal. No, you know, God just didn't give us a set of principles so that we could talk about it. This verse says very clearly, they are commands to obey. <laughs> they're not just philosophies to think about. They are commands to obey. God said, it's okay to talk the talk, but I want to make sure you walk the walk. To talk well without living well is to absolutely misunderstand the character of Christ. He was a doer of the word. 
The aim of every God-fearing Christian is to be a Christ-pleaser, a God-pleaser, and not a man-pleaser. Commandments. They're the commandments of God. A sanctified person understands that the Bible are commands, not just philosophies. You know, I fear sometimes that too often we use interesting words as Christians. For example, we might say, when we sin, we might say, I'm defeated in this particular area, or I've been defeated in this area. (laughs) Well, that's probably true, but I think it's more accurate to say, I'm not defeated, I'm disobedient. Get it down to where it is. It is a command, and God intended for us to win and not be defeated. I read about a owner of a football team that uh, wanted to get some really good players, some great defensive players. And so he hired a scout, and he said to the scout, he said, um, you know, what should we do here? What kind of a player should we get? And so the scout said, well, um, you know, there's different kinds of players out there. There's the kind of player that runs out there and gets knocked down, and he stays down. Owner said, no, I don't, I don't want that kind of guy. He said, well, there's other guys that get knocked down and they stay down, but then they get back up. He said, well, he said, no, I don't want those kind of guys either. He said, well, there are, he said, there are guys that they get knocked down, then they get up, they get knocked down, then they get up, they knock down, they get up. They just keep getting up. He said, that's the kind of player you want. And the owner said, no, I don't want that kind of player. Either. He said, you don't want that kind of player? He said, no, I want the player who knocks them all down. That's what I want. You know, sometimes it seems like in the Christian life, we're always talking about getting defeated. How about being the one that knocks them down? I mean, let's be the winner. And that's what God's saying here. He said, follow the commands of God. You can do so. Now he proceeds with six very incredible arguments for sanctification. Why should I be sanctified? What's purpose? I mean, okay, it sounds like a great big word, but why? Here's why. Number one, sanctification is the biblical choice. If you want to be Bible Christian, then it's the Bible choice. Verse three, for this is the will of God. That's the Bible choice. This is the will of God. Even your sanctification, and if you're a grammar purist, and if you'll go to the original language, that is in the present tense, so it would read even your sanctifying This is the will of God that you constantly are being sanctified and that you abstain from fornication. The will of our God is for us to be sanctified. The amplified paraphrase, which is not a version, but a paraphrase says, for this is the will of God that you should be sanctified and consecrated. I love that thought. That's what God's will is, that we be sanctified. It's not an option. It's the will of God. Now, Paul could have used a lot of different examples, but he picks the example of fornication. Now, the uh, word fornication, people a lot of times try to decide what fornication is as a result or uh, as different from adultery. And, you know, there's actually several dozen uh, terms in the Old and New Testament for different sexual sins. But he just uses the very generic term porneia is where we get that word fornication. It really uh, talks about a whole uh, wide, uh, uh, very uh, dark uh, side of the human life about in our sexual area. 
But here's the situation, likely something like this. Paul had led maybe a young man to the Lord there in Thessalonica. This young man had come from just a lurid background. I mean, you cannot believe how absolutely immoral Greece and Rome, uh, as a result, had become during this season. John Stott says this about this era. He said, the cities of Greece, Asia Minor, and Egypt were centers of the wildest corruption you can imagine. Because of immigration, they had gone to the countries where Rome now was in control, but there was never a period where vice was more extravagant or uncontrolled than under the Caesars. For example, divorce. Divorce had actually become fashionable. It was actually a very fashionable statement, like having all kinds of jewelry. If a woman could give her name and then give four or five or six last names to show that she had, you know, kind of maybe had a stair step and she had married several uh, very notable men or whatever. And so that was actually a fashion statement. Their religion, most of the pagan religion had religious prostitutes and almost everybody either had a mistress, they had affairs. I mean, almost nobody other than the Christians actually had a sanctified sex life. And that's what Paul was saying. He said, you need to have a sanctified sex life. The guy was, he's newly Christian. He said, what in the world are you talking about? He said, man, you cannot live like the world lives. It's, you're gonna, there's diseases, there's destruction of home. There is just uh, so many uh, evils that come along with it. It's, it's terrible. You, you just you don't do that. He said, okay, so then I should never have sex. No, you should have sanctified sex. What is that? That's inside of a covenant marriage between a man and a woman. That's sanctified sex. He wasn't saying don't have it. He was saying have it in the right way. And I think that is an absolutely tremendous principle to understand. And that is this, everything we do is to be sanctified. There's nothing or little in and of itself that is inherently wrong. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament even talked about that. He said, really, all things are possible for me. And I mean, you know, they're not especially always, it's when you have them in an unsanctified way. You take, for example, uh, iPhones or, uh, you know, the internet or computers. And I know um, for some people, they have found that the best plan is just to totally don't have a smartphone or totally be disconnect from the internet. And that's perfectly fine and probably not a bad idea, especially for some young men. However, the better way is to redeem it, to redeem your phone and to redeem uh, the internet or to sanctify it, have a sanctified phone. If I have a sanctified phone, it's not going to be a bad thing for me. It's going to be a blessing. I mean, the internet, folks, is an incredible way to minister. I was reading the other day, you know, there's this new thing that uh, Amazon puts out. I can't remember. It's a little speaker thing that people talk to. What's the name of it? Alexa or something like that? Anyway, you can talk to it and uh, ask it things. I mean, you'd be sitting in your room and you'll say, Alexa. And then the uh, one church in England now has, uh, has gone on and they... People can say, uh, you know, uh, 
ask her about this particular church and say, explain salvation to me. And she will actually, right there, sitting in their home, give them an understanding of salvation. I mean, they are using uh, this thing to spread the gospel. Folks, a sanctified uh, internet is what we want. And it's the same thing that's true with any of our private life. I'm to have a sanctified financial life, a sanctified education. I'm supposed to have a sanctified business. Um, so many things in life. If, just, if it's sanctified, we can, we can enter into it with full assurance. If you can't, folks, if you're feeling shady about it or you're feeling it's a little bit off, then stop and sanctify it. And that's what Paul is saying here to this young man. He is saying, the Bible choice is to sanctify your personal private life. And by the way, make sure you don't buy into that concept that the private life is nobody's business. No, even our private life is God's uh, business. Sanctification is the biblical choice. Number two, the second reason we should be sanctified, it is the honorable choice. Let's read verse four together, please. That every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. Let's do that one more time. Was that not up there? There it is. Okay. Let's say it again. That every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. His vessel, your house, your body, and all of its members, your hands, your feet, your eyes. I need to have sanctified eyes and sanctified hands and sanctified feet. And God is saying here, it is the honorable thing to do. Notice that word honor. You should do it because it is the honorable choice. If you have any feeling about honoring the name of God, then you ought to be sanctified. If you care about God's reputation, then we ought to be sanctified. Throughout the New Testament, God reminds us that we should do certain things or we should not do certain things out of fear of God's name being blasphemed. For example, in Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, God says older women should actually remind younger women of some very important truths. They should love their um, husbands. They should love their children. And then verse 5 says this, they should be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands. Why? Listen, that the word of God be not blasphemed. The very purpose for obedience is so that we won't reflect bad on God. It is the honorable thing to try to protect God's reputation. In 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 1, Paul said to servants, employees, he said, count your master worthy of honor that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. God says, sorry, once you get saved, you not only represent yourself, you represent God. Once you take that name of Christian, Christ one, then you take Jesus into the workplace. You have a responsibility. Our daughter Abigail works at a doctor's office in Lodi, and they had a new hire. Began to talk here a, few, a couple weeks ago, and the topic of church came up, and she said, I went to the home church. She said, really? She's about Abby's age. Come to find out, years ago, when she was 12 or 13, went to a youth camp with Abby. And uh, showed a picture. We got to, she got to talk with her. She said, later I began to think, everything I have done since that girl was hired, I began to look back on. 
Am I being a good example? Was I having the right kind of attitude? And I tell you what, that's exactly how all of us ought to live. We ought to remember, you know what? God's reputation is at stake here. In the Old Testament, you remember what Moses said to God? <laughs> kind of funny, but God, uh, he was telling God, he said, God, you don't want to kill your people. <laughs> you don't want to wipe them out. Because if the Egyptians hear of it, they'll think you're a bad God. You know how many times in the Old Testament, the prayer warriors reminded, they used God's reputation as a prayer promise. You know, God's reputation is important to him. Sanctified people care about how they represent God and what we say and what we do. And I believe sanctified people also care about their own self. I believe they have a self-respect. Notice what it says, know how to possess his vessel, your vessel, self-respect. Now, normally when we use the word self-respect, we the, the common teaching is that, you know, uh, you ought to elevate your wants and your feelings and your desires. What about me? You know, you're supposed to be in a marriage and you're supposed to take care of me. And, you know, that's the common thought about self-respect. But that's not God's concept. God's concept is when we show respect to God, we're showing respect to ourselves. For example, I am really not a fan of putting a bunch of tattoos on us and a bunch of piercings and then disrespecting the fact that that body is the temple of God. We should ask God, God, what do you want? It is the temple of God. Today, so many people use the internet and I'm sad to say that I, I'm, I'm ashamed sometimes when I find especially Christian young ladies that will go on Instagram or Facebook, you know, and they'll put some kind of a Kardashian-style, you know, seductive picture, and then, uh, or the next, or some middle-aged people have, you know, hold up their wine glasses and then be on church on Sunday. My friend, remember something. You have a responsibility to protect the name of God. It's not, and that's self-respect. Have more respect for yourself than to just put yourself out there like that. Have more respect for God than to do something. And that's what God is saying here. Sanctification makes us care about God. And the third thing is that sanctification is the Christian's choice. Verse number five, not in lust of concupiscence. That's a big uh, King James word. just means sensuality. Not with sensuality like the Gentiles, which know not God. God said, don't act like a heathen. An unsanctified life is to act like a Gentile, which simply means a heathen, a pagan. Real Christians know the mind of God, and they want to live like God. God said, when you're lost, of course that's the way you act. But now that you're saved, you should be different. In 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter said, for the time past of our life might suffice us to live like the Gentiles and walk like they did. And then he mentions six different things, lasciviousness, lust. Lasciviousness just is dirtiness and sensuality, excess of wine, you know, getting drunk and getting on drugs, revelings, just party life, banquetings, that's just, you know, gorging yourself with food till your eyes pop out, and abominable idolatries. Peter's argument is simply reasonable, and here's what it is. As is Paul's argument. Look, when you were lost, you served Satan. When you were lost, you served the world. 
When you were lost, you were living for self. Now, now that you're saved, put the same effort into serving God. It is, it is only the right thing to do because it is that Jesus will change your life. He will sanctify you and make you a different person. Jesus changes everything. A little girl proudly wore a shiny cross around her neck. One day she was approached by a man who said to her, little girl, don't you know the cross that Jesus died on wasn't beautiful like the one you're wearing. It was ugly. It was a wooden thing. The little girl replied, yes, I do know that. But she said in Sunday school, they told me that whatever Jesus touches, he changes. And my friend, that's exactly what I'm saying here this morning. Sanctification is the right choice because Jesus changes the things that he touches. We certainly ought to make sure that we honor him that way. Number four, sanctification is the right choice. Let's read verse six together. Ready? Verse six. All right, let's read it together. Ready? Begin. That no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also have forewarned you and testified. Sanctification is not only the honorable thing to God, but it's the right choice to others. It's the just thing to do. In everything that we do, we should never defraud others. We should never cheat them. We should never cheat them in our business. We should never cheat them in our return policy, you know, taking advantage of situations. I saw someone the other day come into Costco. I mean, honestly, folks, I've never seen this. Like, it was a used couch, a used leather couch. And I'm not talking used 30 days used. I'm talking three or four or five years used. And that person had the absolute gall to walk in there and want it returned. I thought, my goodness, now it's taking advantage of a situation. I mean, I know Costco's not poor, but folks, come on now. That is defrauding. God says in everything that we do, whether we're talking on the phone, whether we're driving our car, <laughs> and we want to get involved in road rage, God said, make sure you do the right thing. Because sanctified people are people who make sure they remind themselves they don't defraud anybody in any area. True sanctification is not lived in a bubble. There is this isolationist Christianity that's out there today who imagine that somehow being a good Christian is just isolating themselves from everything in the world. And I believe they've missed the point seriously. I mean, honestly, who couldn't live a sanctified life when you live on a mountain with a peaceful little brook snit going by? It's you, just you and your Bible there. How many think you could probably live a pretty good Christian life for a good week there? I think you could, couldn't you? Take that same person, put them into a sales meeting, or, or take that same lady, put them into a house with six little kids, or take that same guy there and put him on a work site with a bunch of construction guys out there. Then tell me how sanctified you are. You see, sanctification is not lived in a bubble. It's not lived outside of people. True sanctification, Paul said, is living wherever you are a sanctified life. In all that we do, we ought to live a sanctified life. It is a sanctified life. You know, the Catholic Church um, has some glowing errors in its theology, of course. But they do have some interesting thoughts about sainthood. For example, you cannot be a Catholic saint unless you're dead. <laughs> and usually you have to be dead for at least five years. 
I was thinking about that, and I was thinking, you know, actually, there is a correlation to that in our sanctified life. As a saint, we can't be effective until we are dead to sin, until we are dead to our own desires, until we're willing to say, you know what, the right thing is to be sanctified. Number five, sanctification is the holy choice. Verse seven, for God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but into holiness. An unsanctified life is contrary to the very nature of a holy God. Sometimes I wonder, the new choruses, uh, many of them are just awesome. Some are a little bit strange, but the same thing is true about the old hymns. Some of them are pretty interesting. But I will notice that a lot of times some of the new choruses talk about the holiness of God. And I wonder sometimes if we kind of miss what God is, what those beautiful choruses are actually saying. God is a holy God, he, but He is a consuming fire. I think sometimes we treat the holiness of God very lightly. We get saved and just proclaim ourselves to be holy. There is a positional holiness that comes with salvation, but there is a practical holiness that comes because um, I am doing something about it. When you get married, it is expected that you are holy. That is, you are dedicated to the marriage. I've never had a marriage ceremony where I officiated, where the husband looked at the wife and said, I promise that I will be 99% loyal to you. I've never ever done, heard something like that. I, they always say, I pledge, I will keep me to you only so long as I live. And that's the concept behind a covenant marriage. When we get saved, that's what we're saying. We're saying, God, I covenant with you to, give, to, to be holy and faithful to you. A few moments ago, we were singing, God is faithful. And I love that statement. Well, that's good. But am I faithful? God, I'm glad you're faithful, but don't expect me to be faithful. Folks, it is part of our calling to be faithful like a faithful God. Yeah, our son-in-law, Matt Spurgeon, is an Air Force uh, captain. and There are actually quite a few rules about when he can or when he can't actually wear his uniform. It's interesting. So maybe some of you who are in the police uh, departments or corrections or other groups where you wear uh, uniforms, you have the same situation. That is, he cannot wear his uniform everywhere. There are specific times when he can, when he cannot. Why? Because when he wears the uniform, he represents the United States Air Force and the U.S. government. The same thing is true with us. Once we accept the name of Christ, we represent a holy God. And to get saved and to live as we please is ridiculous. It is an insult to a holy God. One of my favorite board games, I'm not a big board game person, but about the only one I ever liked was Monopoly. I've noticed something about Monopoly. Everybody's got a different style. Some people keep their money all in nice little piles, the ones and the fives and the tens and the twenties. I mean, they keep it just perfect. And they have all their little properties out. Some people buy a million properties and have one or two hotels. Some buy all the utilities. Some go for boardwalk and park place. Everybody's got a different philosophy about Monopoly. But there's one thing that everybody loves, and that's a get-out-of-free-jail card. Because when you get out of jail free card, I mean to tell you, it is just the best thing in the world. No matter what you've done, you get out of jail free. And honestly, sometimes I feel like people treat Christianity like a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's the fact is, you know, I'm saved. 
man, I can do whatever I want now. Folks, God says we have a holy calling. That is what sanctification is. Sanctification is the biblical choice. Sanctification is the honorable choice. Sanctification is the Christian choice. Sanctification is the right choice. Sanctification is the holy choice. And finally, sanctification is the only grateful choice. If we're grateful for all that God's done, the least we can do is to live a holy life. Verse 8. Let's all read it together, please, if you would. Ready, begin. He, therefore, that despiseth, despiseth not man, but God, who hath also given us his Holy Spirit. To get saved and then not to live a holy life is the height of ungratefulness. I will tell you, there are few things in this world that is any more stinky than an ungrateful, unthankful person. I've watched some of these waiters and waitresses serving people, and honestly, I think I don't think I could be a waitress or a waiter for very long because the way that most people treat those people is terrible. I mean, I know there's some cranky waitresses out there and waiters, but uh, tell you what, there's people, I mean, they just treat them like dirt. They'll walk up, you know, and, and the people won't even say anything. They just look at their little thing there and just kind of grunt at them and, you know, complain because their water isn't, you know, um, you know, exactly 42 degrees of temperature or whatever. I mean, it's like, honestly, folks, come on. I mean, they treat them so rude. And I think about, you know, how ungrateful they are serving you. And uh, we ought to look at them, look at their name tag and say, hello, Sherry, so good to meet you. And uh, we'll have this and, you know, you know, to, to be grateful to people is just such a great thing, to be grateful for those around us uh, who've made a difference in our life, our parents, our dads today, we ought to be thankful, even if he wasn't all that he should have been. And I'm sure that he probably is not happy about that. But I will say this, we ought to say, you know what, God, I thank you for the people that you put into my life. But we also certainly ought to say thank you to God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for all you've done for me. And because of all you've done for me, give me a heavenly home, I gladly sanctify myself. Paul is saying to these Christians, he's saying, now folks, you've been saved you got to live different than these Greek people here. They're crazy. They are a bunch of heathen. They're a bunch of pagans. Come on now, live different than them. Don't just take the name of Jesus like a get-out-of-jail-free card. I want you to live a sanctified life, a different life. Be different. It's the only grateful choice. If you're thankful for all that God's done, don't despise it. Don't despise what God has done. And then specifically, he said... Don't despise the Holy Spirit. You, that is a serious problem there. Now, elsewhere in the New Testament, God warns us about uh, how we treat the Holy Spirit. For example, he said, don't ever quench the Holy Spirit. He said, uh, don't ever grieve the Holy Spirit. And then, of course, there are those very uh, um, uh, ominous uh, Reminders that you can actually commit a sin against, a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. The point being here, the Holy Spirit is not just your little person you can do whatever you want to about. You know, you can't just 
treat the Holy Spirit that way. He don't ever quench him. Don't ever resist him. Make sure that you remember that the Holy Spirit lives within you. He is very close to you and he wants to be close for you. You ought to make sure that you are grateful the fact that you have the Holy Spirit living within you. Treat the Holy Spirit with respect. Listen to his promptings and listen as he explains the word to you. And remember when he's talking to you in a service or you know, throughout the day, um, I try to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. And if you pray about it, you become more sensitive. This week, I've purposely uh, prayed that prayer, uphold me with thy free spirit, out of Psalm 51. And it's been interesting to me how many times I have sensed a situation. And that's part of the gifts of the Spirit, the Bible says, that you become a discerner of spirits. And, you know, when you pray about it, the Holy Spirit is happy to oblige you may not be always what you want, but you know what? To be sensitive to the Holy Spirit, and that is something very precious. People say, well, it's not that big a deal to sin. Well, okay, whatever. You know, I mean, I know there's people got ideas about sin and not, but here's the point. What you certainly don't want to do is grieve the Holy Spirit. You certainly don't want to quench Him. You certainly don't want to despise the Holy Spirit because He is the one that's, He's like your internal GPS. I mean, that's like turning off everything you got and just winging it. No, we, let's make sure we have everything going. We need the Holy Spirit. I close with a story I read this week and about a farmer. This man was one hard guy. I mean, he was abusive. He was foul-mouthed. He was not nice to anybody, including his family. He had a Christian friend, however, who had done what he could to try to reach him for Christ. And finally, the man had a crisis in his life. And because of the godly influence of his friend, he got saved. And his change was dramatic. He was just transformed by the grace of God. This man began to be nice to his employees. He was sweet to his wife. He was gentle and thoughtful to his children. He was a good provider. I mean, he was just absolutely transformed. One day he was out there working on his farm and he just got absolutely frustrated, just beside himself. And if you've ever been out there in this world, you know what I'm talking about. There are some things just get you so frustrated. One thing after another piles up. And I mean to tell you, this guy just fell back on his old ways. He just started cursing up a blue streak. He was just throwing things around and he was just absolutely livid. And all of a sudden, he caught himself, and he was devastated, and he was just floored, and he couldn't believe that he had gone back to that old junk, and he couldn't, he just couldn't even imagine, how could I do this? And he was swearing at his employees, he just lost his testimony, and he was even cussing at the animals. He just stopped, went back into the farmhouse. When his wife came in, she sees him sitting at the kitchen table, face buried in his hands. He just looks up at her and she said, honey, what's wrong? He said, honey, I'm no different than I used to be. I've got the same old heart as I used to have. And she looked at him and she said, honey, let me tell you something. You are so different because the old you wouldn't have even cared that you had done what you just did. 
I can see the Holy Spirit in you. He's telling you what you're doing, and he's telling you how you're acting. That's a precious gift, honey. You are so different than you used to be. You see, a sanctified life doesn't mean that you never blow up or you never sin or, you know, you're little goody two-shoes, you're always holy. It just means you're sensitive to the Holy Spirit about his precious promptings, and you're saying, God, I want every area of my life to be sanctified. Paul used the illustration of your sex life, but it could be anything. It could be your entertainment life. It could be your educational life or financial life. Just sanctify it all. That's the point. God said every area is sanctified. That's what a real Christian is. Would you bow your heads with me?